I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. What we're going to do is I'm going to read a passage. We're going to share some things. And I'm going to read this passage again. Then we're going to have lunch. All right. So I'm going to read this passage. Then I'm going to share some things. Then I'm going to read this passage again. Then we're going to have lunch. All right. And we're going to see whether or not this thing hits. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. It's going to be on page 265, on page 265, if I can get somebody to put it on the, on the screen. Ephesians 2. No, that's not page 265, that's my bad, that's the Galatians. Right? Ephesians 2, page 568. 568. And we'll put it on the screen for those who can't read this tiny little print. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You there with me? Page 568. Amen. I want you to, I want you to just take, take, take an account as I read this, where you are, where your journey is through these verses. Like picture yourself in, in these verses, okay? And watch the progression. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you were dead following Pied Piper of this world, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You hear all this past tense language? You walked following the prince of the power of the air. You were in disobedience. You were children of wrath. But God made us alive with Christ Jesus. Not when you believed, but when he made you alive in Christ Jesus first, in him. This is all true in him. The reason it's true about us is because it's true in him. He raised us up with him. Do you see that? He didn't raise you up after him. He didn't raise you up way after down the line. It was when Jesus was raised, you were raised with him. I promise this is in scripture. Your humanity, your person, the future of your life was seen and the destiny and legacy that you were intended and created for was secured in him. Raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of your own doing. Not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the enabling of God for you to walk it out to prove that it can be yours. We often talk about it as though it's the enabling of God for you to walk it out so that then it can be yours. No, it is the gift of God so that you can walk it out precisely because it already is yours. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see where we're created? Do you see this language? You know how we always want to identify ourselves? Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm still this other thing. I'm still in the flesh. You're created in Christ Jesus, and you're telling me we're still in the flesh? So when God created you and you in Christ Jesus, he created you with a little bit of the old that he absolutely abolished and did away with in Jesus? Are y'all tracking with me? I, I don't, I genuinely... I don't, I don't get it. How can we make brand new creation and still say that we're absolutely one foot in the old? We together? How many of y'all have felt that you're in the old? Anybody ever feel like you're in the old? What's, what's the good news about us feeling like we're in the old? Feelings are not Lord. They can be good followers, but they're not good leaders. Let feelings come underneath the word of God and its truth. So that if the word of God says, behold, I have made all things new and those who are in Christ have been made new, then what's the truth about us? In Christ by faith, we're what? We're new, right? You know, I try to give my sister some old shoes once. You know, I, I, I made a huge mistake, Floyd. I saw a whole bunch of shoes in my sister's size and I could get her the brand new ones for like a hundred and something bucks, or I could get her 10 for a hundred bucks. Slightly used. To my great shame, I chose the 10. Do you think my sister received them? Oh, no, 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 no. She knew the difference between new and used. She knew the difference between new and used. I was like, but girl, it's the prudent financial decision. See, the economics of it just don't work when you want new. And the economics of you accounting your life through your behavior and then saying you're on this journey and counting it methodically and mathematically, I used to commit these many sins, but now it's these many sins and I'm this. Nah, you're still slightly used if we're using that pattern of thinking. There's a difference between used and new, and I'm looking at new. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should. You notice how you have the privilege of walking in your new creationness. You do not walk these things out in order to be found as something. You walk these things out because you've been made something. And if ever I stumble along the way, guess what I still am? 
loved, redeemed, new. So I rise up in confidence because the spirit of God does not call me sinner and slave. The spirit of God calls me son in righteousness. And he says, son of the living God, why are you giving yourself over to things that are no longer property to you? Why would you give yourself over to the deceitfulness of your former life that you've been delivered from? This is often a question that gets that raises up. Well, Jonathan, what do we do when we sin? I'll tell you what you do when you sin. You want to know what you do when you sin? You ready? Go to first John two. Man, this ain't even the sermon, but this is where we going. You go to first John two. You ready? First John two, verse one. In the old way of hearing this verse, whoo, it's heavy. But in the new way, such grace, such power. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children. Now write this. L listen to the language that John uses. My little children, I write this to you for when you sin. My little children, I write this to you for every time that you will sin because inevitably you're still part of the old. Is that what it says? My little children, I write this to you so that what? You may not sin. When we think of sin as behavior, we hear this very, very heavy. When you hear this sin as behavior and as your moral actions, you hear this very, very heavy. Why? Because you know that in and of yourself that there is that time coming where somebody's going to cut you off on the highway and you're going to salute them with that one digit. Right? And by one digit, I mean this one. What were y'all thinking? Flawed, flawed. Oh, this, <laughs> Jim gives them shame on you, sir. Shame on you. Yeah, I'm gonna start doing that, right? Somebody, somebody cuts you, sir. Shame on you. Uh, that's good. The one digit salute. Oh, that's good. We know that that's inevitable. Inevitably, you know, we we know that we're gonna end up there someday, right? So when we think about sin that way and you read this verse what do you guys recognize it's an impossibility right is that is that fair to say but if you hear sin as lawlessness not simply the transgression of the law and what do i mean by lawlessness is that where righteousness ought to be it no longer is right the whole in here that was lawless when I believed a lie and I was living apart from God, separated, an alien, a stranger from the covenants of God. This is Ephesians. When I used to live there, I used to live in sin. John is writing us so that we never establish ourselves there again because we've been loved, we've been grafted in, we've been adopted, we've made brand new. My little children, I write to you so that you no longer give yourself to the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of your former patterns. You're established in righteousness. In Christ Jesus' name, you've been lifted up. You are now alive. Don't you give yourself over to the lie by practicing the deceitful dark arts of the life of death. Don't do it. That's not you. All of a sudden, it's don't give yourself over to sin and you see yourself righteous and you say, why would I want to? But we know that there are those moments when we participate in the patterns of the former ignorance. Amen? Right? So what happens when we give ourselves over and we participate in the patterns of the former ignorance? I don't know if you're like me, but I've, I found myself once or twice doing and saying things that I'm not proud of, even in freedom. Do I then take account of myself 
and name myself something that he doesn't call me? Think about this. If I find myself here, do I then take account of myself, look to myself, set my mind on my behavior, assess my own situation with my own thinking, analyze myself and determine that I'm still in the flesh and I'm not really what he says I am? Is that what I'm instructed to do? No, what I'm instructed to do is this. Watch this. Verse 2. Oh, sorry. Verse 1. My fault. Look. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, again, if you hear this in the old mind, you know what the old mind believes? The old mind believes is that Jesus is up there like some sort of lawyer that is actually pleading our case. Like, oh, well, Father, you should forgive them because I did this thing for them. And listen, they're, they're really mine. I claimed them. I won them. Please love them. If that's the picture then where's the source of love and who needs to be convinced? If that's the picture, where is the source of love and who needs to be convinced? The source of love is Jesus, and who does he need to convince? God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It was the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It was the Father's gracious will in life that actually gave up his son as hard as it was for him because he saw you and thought your life and destiny was worth dying for. And then it was the Father who put Jesus on his right hand. It was the Father who put Jesus at his right hand so that you might know how close he wants you through his son. The point we have a mediator is because the father put him there so that you might know how close and intimate the father wants you in relationship with him. So when John encourages us to see that we have a mediator, he's not telling us to look that there's an advocate that's pleading your case and making a logical, rational explanation as to why the father shouldn't zap you. It's not at all what John is saying. What John is telling us is, my beloved sons, my beloved daughters, look up and see that the father himself has put your mediator at his right hand because there is nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing that the father wants to separate you from his love as it is in Christ Jesus. You understand? So when I look up and I see a mediator, what do I see? I see that my standing, I see my security. And if I ever give myself over to this foolishness, what am I instructed? The Holy Spirit, man, the Holy Spirit, have y'all ever noticed that the Holy Spirit, uh, we're told that the Holy Spirit convicts of three things. What does he convict? Sin, righteousness, and sin, righteousness, and judgment. Go to John, what is that, John 14? John 16? Thanks, Richard. John 16. Here's John 16 with me. Oh, uh, what is that verse? 14? No. Richard, what verse is it? Oh, it's 8. Thanks, Ed. Look at this. Listen, listen, listen to this, right? Look at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict who? He will convict who? Now, when I have you repeat, I want you to repeat the Bible. So you're not repeating my words, you're repeating the words of the Bible, yeah? So who does he convict? One more time, who does he convict? Okay, 
concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, he's convicting the world because they do not, what? Is that you? <laughs> Is that you? Verse 10, concerning righteousness because he goes to the Father. What does that mean? I, I think, I've read some commentaries on this. It's that Jesus convicts them of righteousness in the sense that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only righteous one that can actually mediate between God and man. So he convicts them concerning righteousness because one, you don't believe in me, but I'm the only way. And then verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So you don't believe in me, but I'm the only way. And I'm the only way because there is no other ruler. I hold the keys. That's what this, the spirit convicts the world. He brings conviction into the world on these three points. You don't believe in me, but I'm the only way. And I'm the only way because I'm the one with all rule and authority. What are you going to do about it? You know that at some point, every single eye, every single ear will see him and they will be convicted on this truth. And they will bow the knee and say that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know that this will happen, right? But we see this verse and we think that this is the work of the spirit in our lives. But he's convicting who? What does it say? He's convicting the? He's convicting the? Now go to John 17 because you know it's just all one letter, yeah? I'm not one letter, one book. And this book positions... Jesus turns into a high priestly prayer. Because you know from John 13, right on through 17, it's one huge scene, right? John 13 begins with the, um, the washing of the disciples' feet, the final supper, and this is all one scene. You can fact check me. Read it for yourself. It's one scene. You know, we do this thing that we separate it because we have chapter numbers, but I promise you, it's one scene. So if he's saying, Spirit's going to come in, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're too quick to see ourselves there, but look at how Jesus sees it. Look what he says in John 17, 13. Start with 13. John 17, 13. John 17, 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the what? I speak where? In the? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the do you see the distinction here do you see the distinction my beloved that i'm trying to make that in john 14 the spirit is going to convict the world but Jesus is praying in John 17 for those who have received his word that are still in the world, but the world has hated them because the world are the ones who don't believe on Jesus. The world are the ones that resist the righteousness that is Jesus. The world is the ones that are still on the wrong side of the judgment because they're under the, the power of the prince of the air. But these which Christ has given his word who have received it are not of the world. So then what's the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer? What's the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer? Turn with me to 1 John 2. You notice that I'm just reading one author so far, right? At least in this, this portion, one author. Who wrote the book of 
John. Who wrote the book of 1 John? You would think his, his thinking is consistent, yeah? Look at 1 John 2. John 2, verse 26. You with me? 1 John 2, verse 26. 1 John 2, 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him does what? Come on now. Isn't that good? It abides in you. And what's that anointing that we receive? The fullness of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does something on the inside to us. Look what it does. This, this is a crazy next line. When I saw this in scripture, I was like, what in the world? And you have no need that anyone should teach you. You imagine if we preach that like strongly because we believe that the Holy Spirit was actually abiding and instructing like, yo, nobody else is your teacher. We commune together to encourage one another in the spirit. But you test these according to the spirit and see if they're true because the spirit himself will teach you. Look at this. But as his anointing does what? As his anointing does what? Teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. So the Holy Spirit comes to us and teaches us everything that is. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, my beloved, is to come into our lives and to teach us everything that is true. That's why we continue to grow up into Christ in him because the Holy Spirit is doing the work of teaching us everything that is true. And how does the Holy Spirit teach us everything that is true? Jesus told us how the Holy Spirit teaches us everything that is true. He will tell you everything that I have said. He will remind you of every word that I have spoken. So the Holy Spirit teaches us, the believers, everything that Jesus has spoken. Can I ask you a question? Does Jesus condemn you? Does Jesus see you through your sin? Does Jesus come in and want you to somehow do a self-assessment of how terrible you are? Where in scripture has Jesus ever related to someone searching after truth in that way? Where in scripture has Jesus ever related to someone searching for truth in that way? Why then do we think that that's the way now that the Holy Spirit is going to activate us in our lives? Are y'all tracking with me what I'm trying to lay down? Here's what I would offer you. As I see in scripture, what happens? My little children, if, if we fall and we fail and we stumble along the way, the Holy Spirit teaches us what is true. And what is true? Are you your sin in that moment? Are you the totality of the moment of stumbling? Are you somehow separated from the love of God? No, no. Do you still have a mediator at the right hand of the Father? Is your life hidden Christ? Do you have standing because you have face-to-face -face communion? 
are you a righteous daughter and son? So guess what the Spirit does in that moment? The Spirit teaches you all that is true. Son of the living God, why are you giving yourself over to lies that are not true about you? Son of the living God, why are you abiding in foolishness that has no part in your life in Christ Jesus? And when the Spirit instructs me as a son and teaches me all that is true and again reminds me of my standing and my stature, what am I impressed with? What do I leave with? I leave with an illumination that calls me beloved. And in seeing myself the way he sees me and names me, I also see the deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes people say like, oh, we, we don't. So we hear this. Jonathan, just, sometimes it feels like you don't deal with sin seriously. And I have to turn that back around on people. I'm like, y'all don't deal with sin seriously enough. You don't deal with sin seriously. I don't think you deal with the Savior seriously enough. Do you know that sin is so atrocious and so deceitful and so powerful that it required the life of Jesus in order to overcome it? Sin is so dark, so deep, so malicious, so damaging, it required the one and only God of heaven to actually deal with it. Let me ask you a question. You think that you'll be able to feel bad enough about sin in order to justify your standing with the Father? If sin was so terrible and so deceitful that it required the life of Jesus, do you think that you're going to be able to feel bad enough about sin? God doesn't require you to internally feel bad about sin. God requires us to actually have our eyes illuminated to actually see the deceitfulness of sin. There's a difference. God doesn't want us just to constantly be feeling bad because we're constantly falling left and right and then thinking that feeling bad, we make him a greater savior because we think less of ourselves. No, what God wants is to actually correctly see that sin is a monster that kills everything it touches. And he wants us to be separate and holy as he is holy because he has made us holy. So see sin, call it out for what it is. It is deceitful. It is wicked. I want no part in it because I am a righteous son who has been established in life. So we're taking this thing deadly seriously, but we're not measuring ourselves according to our own feelings. We're measuring sin according to his truth. And if sin required the son of God in order to be undone, I don't want to touch it with a 30 foot pole. It's not about me feeling bad about it. It's that I love my life in Christ Jesus so much. I love my standing. I love his favor. I love his faithfulness. I've tasted something so sweet and so good. I never want to return to the ignorance of my former passion. And so I see correctly because his spirit teaches me that sin is a great deceitful monster that we should be completely separated from. What do you think? You want to hear some good news? In Christ by faith, you have been separated from it. In Christ by faith, we are in fact free from sin, yeah? So that, my beloved, when we fall, because those moments will happen, don't have sin consciousness, man. Don't live in a sin conscious mentality that, oh, woe is me. No, live with sun consciousness that rises up and says, I will go to my father because this is stupid. And then when you, like, I will rise and go to my father, the Holy Spirit teaches you and says, hey, buddy, you're already in and with your father. You're, oh, okay. And that revelation comes alive again and integrity is putting you afresh and you walk 
with purity of heart, right? You can make amends where amends need to be made. You can say, I'm sorry, where I sorry needs to be said. You can call a lie a lie when it needs to be called out. Why? Because you're walking in the integrity of the righteousness that you have. Yeah? That's not even the sermon today, yeah. Is it, Ed? All right. You guys want to do today's sermon like in a quick 20 minute? Just kind of zip. Right? Can I show you something really cool in scripture? We're going to do it in about 20, 25 minutes and we'll have lunch about, you think we could have lunch about 1240 and then just take our time and, you know, right? Because maybe we'll, we'll just make this part a little heavier. We'll have a little time heavy here, right? And then we're free to have lunch and I have to come back. What do you think? We just, is it all right? Is your belly still okay, Casey? Because if not, I got a sandwich that he called me out on it. He's like, okay, I'll take it. All right, check this out. Luke chapter three. Go with me to Luke chapter three, uh, verse 38. The question is this. You guys should answer it correctly. We're going to move fast. So I need you to stay with me. Stay sharp. Okay. We're moving fast. We're moving fast, fast. Ricky Bobby fast. Okay. We still don't know what to do with our hands, but we're going to do it. All right. Luke three, 38. That's an old, old reference. All right. Luke three, 38. Look what it says. Luke 3 is the genealogy of the life of Jesus. Luke 3 is the genealogy of what? The life of Jesus, right? And Luke is determining finally that Jesus comes from this particular line and Luke works, works all the way from Jesus all the way back. And Luke, the doctor, right? The biologist, the guy who's actually uh, uh, has the credentials to do this genealogy, goes all the way to um, Adam. And look what he says. He says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of... So for Luke, the doctor, who is the son of God? I didn't make it up. It's right there. The son of Adam, the son of? Because Adam, who was his father that actually fathered him and made him, he came directly from God, right? This is Adam one, Adam one, yeah? Now, Adam one, does he receive dominion? He absolutely receives dominion. What is he given? He's in charge of something. Adam is like a governor, right? He's in charge of something under the authority of the king, the king being God, and Adam is a, you can use whatever language you want, a governor, a vice regent, co-lord, something, whatever, but he is under the authority of God, and he's given a dominion, and that dominion is the planet of earth. Now, this is already, we're starting with some wild stuff, crazy stuff, you know? Just to be clear, we're talking, if, if somebody were to come in here, doesn't, knows nothing, it's like, these people are talking about planets and a man who represents the whole earth? Are they giving a summary of a science fiction movie? No, 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 no. Wild stuff, but I believe it. All right? So Adam has dominion over earth. Does Adam retain his dominion? No! Adam does not retain his dominion because who does he lose his dominion to? One day, Adam is with his wife, and his wife offers him a fruit. Adam takes the fruit, and Adam, in taking the fruit, Something happens where he's separated from his connection with the king and the dominion of the earth actually falls to someone else. That dominion falls to the prince of the power of the air. That dominion falls to the God of this world, how Paul calls him. That dominion is now in the hands of the Satan, Hasatan, the enemy, the Diablos, the devil, right? If you don't believe me, go to Luke chapter 4. 
And look what uh, the enemy says to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, you have Jesus hungry after 40 days in the wilderness. And you know the story. The enemy comes to Jesus, tempts him, and he says in verse uh, 5, Luke 4 verse 5, look at this. And the devil took him up and showed him how many kingdoms? All the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. Now look at what the enemy says to Jesus. And he said to him, to you I will give this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to and I give it to whom I will. What in the world? And Jesus doesn't correct them. Right? So there's this, there's this continual thing where the enemy has some sort of representative power at the head of humanity. You with me? You want to see another place we see this? Go to the book of Job. You go to the book of Job. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Job 1. Job 1 verse 6. Look what it says. Job 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came with them. What in the world? So there's a meeting with these sons of God and Satan comes with them. Yeah. Now the question I have are twofold. One, who are these sons of God? And two, why does Satan have access? Well, it's rather interesting if we pursue the first question. If the first question is, who are these sons of God? Go to Job. You're in Job. Go to chapter 38. Look at this. This is, this is a telling, telling little, little thing here. Job 38. Now, let me just set you up successfully. If you know anything about the story of Job, how many of y'all know the story of Job? You know that Job loses his family, his property, his business, his children. Only his wife remains. His wife tells him, like, yo, you just need to die already. Like, curse your God and die. Job is unwilling to do that. The only thing that Job wants is Job wants an audience with God. Something terrible has happened to Job, and Job wants an audience with God. How many of y'all can resonate with that? You have something terrible happen to you, and you want an audience with God. Can I speak plain? Sometimes we need to be careful for what we ask for. Right, Pastor Adre? Because... Job gets his audience, but he doesn't get answers to his questions. You know what Job gets? More questions. And now he's the one being interrogated. There's my ESL coming out. And look at, look at the interrogation process. Job 38. Look at this. Job 38. We're going to be in verse 4. God finally shows up to Job. Job is asking, why are all these bad things happening to me? Right? And look what God says to him. Now remember, we're answering the question, who are the sons of God? Right? Taking a deviation. The reason we're answering the question, who are the sons of God, is because these sons of God are present at this meeting, that the devil is there. Why is the devil there? Because he took standing from Adam. And who is Adam? Adam is the son of God. You see the thread? Adam is the son of God. Adam loses dominion. The devil's at this meeting with other sons of God. What is going on here? Well, who are the sons of God? Well, we're going into this Job story. We're going to find out. But together, Job 38. This is God talking to Job. Hey, 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you must know, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? You, you want to ask me questions? Let me ask you some questions, Job. On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstones? Next verse. And when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for? How many sons of God? All the sons of God, plural, meaning there was more than one. And these more than one are actually present watching God create. And the point that God is saying is that morning stars were there, sons of God were there, but guess who wasn't there? You, Job. So these sons of God actually watch God create, and as God is creating, they're just cheering him on. So these sons of God exist prior to the creation of earth, so they are not beings proper to earth. Quite surprisingly, when you see this term, sons of God, it always relates to somebody with dominion. Just like Adam was a son of God that has dominion. Jesus is a son of God that has dominion. These sons of God also have dominion. We could do a Bible study on this, but the short of it is that it seems as though these sons of God are beings with dominion in God's kingdom that are not earth. I told you it was going to get wild. So these sons of God are beings with dominion in the universe of God, but the dominion they have is not earth. Because guess who should have been at that meeting as a son of God representing earth? But guess who's at the meeting when the sons of God all get together representing earth? The enemy. And so in that place where Adam should have stood, guess who's standing? Satan. What does that tell us? That at one point in earth's history, earth's representative in the council of God with the sons of God was the enemy. Isn't that wild? It's wild. Absolutely crazy. So a false ruler, a false parent, a false God is now representing humanity as though he's the one with proper dominion. And does he have proper dominion? No, he does not. Now you imagine God sees this situation and he can't endure this. And this is where Philippians 2 is very, very helpful. You turn with me to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 helps us understand what the next move is. Because God sees Satan there. And the thing is that under the law, legally, Satan has every right to be there. Yeah? God can't endure this. He's not going to have his sons and daughters represented by a false parent. Let me say this again and hear me well. He's not going to have his sons and daughters represented by a false parent. Say it one more time. He's not going to have his sons and daughters represented by a false parent. So what does he do? Philippians 2, watch this. Verse 5, it helps us get a glimpse into what happens next. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Side note, you have the mind of Christ. Pretty cool. 6, Philippians 2, 6. Who though he was in the form of God, so he's sitting there as God, 
He does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he rises from his throne and he empties himself. So God, Jesus comes, lays down his divine prerogatives. He empties himself, takes the form of a servant. So he moves from God, empties himself of divine prerogatives and comes in the form of a servant, but not any servant. He's born in the likeness of men. So he goes from God, lays down his divine prerogatives, becomes a servant, born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he goes from being God, rises up, lays down the prerogatives, becomes a servant, becomes a man, is found humble as a man, and is so obedient, he's obedient to the point of death. Why is he obedient to the point of death? The situation that we found ourselves when the enemy was the head of the world, when he was representing, do you know what was the end of every single human under his dominion? Death. You know that Lucifer, Hasatan, the enemy, the Diablos, whatever you want to call him, you know that he can't give life? You know he can't give life? Do you know he's tried to find ways to give life? This is some wild stuff, and we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. But he's tried to find ways to give life. He's tried to make amalgamations between beast and man in order to find the secret of how to actually give life. And do you know that he can't find how to give life, right? Do you know why he can't find how to give life? Because he cannot give what is not original to him. He cannot give what is not original to him. Let me give a quick aside because I'm going to take my time. Now I know I got y'all. For anybody that doubts that they're a child of God, do you know that we've been gifted with the ability to procreate so that we can actually pass life on down? Do you know why that is? Because we bear the image of our father. We were made in his image. Man and woman together can actually procreate life. You look like your daddy, even when you don't know it. Imagine if you told them that that's the truth of who they are, that they are actually like us. In Christ Jesus, they could actually catch that revelation. Are y'all picking up what I'm laying down? What if we understood that deeply? Back on track. So the enemy can't give life. He's finding ways to try to give life. But the reason he can't give life is because he can't give what isn't original to him. So what does God do? He lays down his prerogative. He comes into this world as a man. He's humble and obedient to the point of the cross. And on that whole journey, he never once gives himself never once gives himself to the lies of the enemy. The enemy is trying to position God as a severe, harsh, exacting creditor. And never does Jesus ever believe the lies. Even when Jesus is hungry 40 days and he feels as though in the deepest parts of him, he needs some sustenance. When he's invited to take part in sustenance apart from the truth of God, he says, no, I live my life from the word, not first and foremost from bread and morsels. From the word. When he's on the cross, 
And he feels himself being ripped apart and he feels abandoned by his father and rejected by those he came to serve. What does he do? Does he give himself over to the feelings? Does he give himself over to the sensuality and power of a prince of this dark world? No, he establishes his life on the word and he says, yet I go headlong into you for you, God, come give you my spirit. Let thy will be done. You tracking with me? And what Jesus is doing this whole time, do you know what he's doing this whole time? Two things. One, he's demonstrating to lost sons and daughters what the love of the true father looks like. Two things he's doing. One, he's demonstrating to lost sons and daughters what the true love of the, the real father looks like. And number two, what he's doing? <sighs> Hear me now. Number two is what he's doing. He is spoiling the domain of death. When Jesus goes into death, it's as though he goes into a dark sea and he opens up a portal through that sea so that we can walk on dry land. Wink, wink. He goes into the dark sea and separates it apart so that we can walk through and go from death, slavery under Pharaoh, through waters of death, and come out on the other side alive, free, singing the song of the Lamb, Exodus 14. Some of y'all hopefully are picking up what I'm laying down. So through the death of Jesus, the domain of death is spoiled so that death cannot have the final word. Because in Jesus is life unborrowed, underived, and original. So that he himself has the power to pull from death into life via himself because now he has the power over life in death because he has spoiled the domain of death that the false father used as his calling card. Are y'all tracking with me? I'll give you a quick example. I won't go there because for the sake of time. Do you guys know the story of the two uh, women who are roommates and they have babies and they're ladies of uh, uh, quite the profession, right? We're told, or at least it's intimated. Y'all know what I'm talking about in, in Kings? And there's these two ladies, and they have infant babies. They go to bed one night, and one of the ladies rolls over and kills uh, her infant child. You know the story? In the middle of the night, what does she do? She steals the living child from her roommate and puts it next to her. Takes the dead child and puts it next to the sleeping mother. In the morning, when they both awake, the mother who did not wake through the night, the mother who did not roll over on her baby, is appalled to see this dead child next to her. She realizes it's not her child and realizes that her roommate has stolen her living child from her and is now claiming it as her own. Sound familiar? Stolen the children and is claiming them as her own. And then the case is so fraught with intense scrutiny and interest it's brought all the way to Solomon. Now Solomon is the wisest of all kings, yeah? And you could imagine that when this case is brought up to Solomon, people are just wrapped, like, man, how is Solomon gonna figure this out? He's so wise, he's so thoughtful, like, he'll know what to do. And so Solomon, you, you know, I, I, you could imagine like somebody in the court, like, oh, this is your first day on the job? Watch Solomon, he's a smart one. He gonna figure this out, this, this is gonna be good, it's gonna be good. 
Solomon comes up and Solomon ponders the situation and Solomon's like, mm, what should we do here? Mm, let me think this through. Okay, so you're saying that's your baby, but you're saying it's not. You're saying the dead one. Okay, you want her? Hmm, okay, all right, hold on. Well, just a minute. Goes and ponders, comes back, and Solomon's like, Eureka, I have it. This guy's over here like, wait, watch. Right? Solomon, the smart one, there's a boy, he's a thinker. Solomon goes, give me a sword. We'll chop it in half. We'll give each one of y'all a half. Everybody will be happy. This guy's over. No, no, no. That's a terrible idea. Terrible idea. He must have not slept well. Don't, no, no, not, not good. Solomon knows something, though. He knows something that every single parent in here knows. Is that the moment that that sword comes out, there's a shriek in that room. And the true mother says what? Let the child live. Let my enemy keep the child for the sake of it having life. Every parent knows this, that if it came down to the come down, you would rather have your child raised by an enemy in hopes that one day you might be able to reveal yourself to your child. And our father, in his heart, was broken. He let lost sons and daughters be raised by a liar. He let them be formed and shaped absolutely in a lie. Why? Because he was unwilling to let them perish. And when the day came for the sword to fall, he was not willing to let the sword fall on his children and have them be split in half. No, 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 no. In our story, our father, who revealed the truth of who he was, allowed in the person of his son for him to receive the sword and be split apart so that you and I might remain whole. Matter of fact, so that you and I might actually for once receive the truth that we have wholeness in him. And so think about this, my beloved. On the cross, the God of heaven is being ripped apart in the person of his son. Darkness that's so broad, so black, and so deep is a chasm that Jesus feels that he cannot come back from. And he's doing this all from love to thee so that you might have a revelation of who your true father is and how far your father is willing to go so that you might have life. And he's ripped apart. Goes into the grave. Could you imagine that? Do you know he goes to the grave at the hand of his own children who are killing him because they are so warped and so in deceitfulness? They believe the false father so much that when the true father shines his light, they see him as an enemy. Can you imagine that? Bro, you imagine that? You imagine that? And I know that you would give every single ounce of your blood for that boy to know how much you love him. How much more our father for you? How much for our father for us? And Jesus spoils the domain of death so that you and I can go through if we receive and believe his love for us and come out on the other side just like he now stands on the other side. Because see, he went down into the grave, yeah? But God, a few days later, a stone was rolled. And the king of all rule and authority stepped out 
not in an atom one body, but in an atom two body from the heaven, having completely redeemed humanity. And he resurrected humanity with him. Now go back to Philippians 2. Watch what happens if you're still there. Look at Philippians 2, verse 9. You remember when I told you that God put him at his right hand? I promise you, I read it in the book. Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So who put him there at his right hand? The Father. For the Father so loved Bob, he was only willing to give Jesus so that Bob might know that he's actually a saint in the family of God. That's good news, ain't it, Bob? Whew. Might mess around, take a shoe out, take a shoe off and throw it at somebody. It's so good. You know what's super cool, y'all? Is that uh, the Bible gives us these prophetic pictures in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms. If you read Psalm 22, can't go there now. For the sake of time, I'm trying to get to my last point here. It's going to be another little bit. I lied to y'all about 20 minutes. I didn't intend to. I was sincere. But Psalm 22 has an image of, you know, Psalm 22 is where God quotes, where Jesus quotes, um, right? My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me, right? And then in Psalm 23, where does he go? Yea, through the, walk through the valley of the shadows of death. Have you ever read Psalm 24? Go with me to Psalm 24. Let me show you. So it's a prophetic image. It's a prophetic image. I promise you, I'm landing this plane now. At least I, I see the, the, the landing strip. Well, maybe I've called the airport. Let's put it that way. I called the airport. Right? Exactly. Right? I, I, I'm having some problem with my readings, but I know where I'm headed. We're going to get there. Right? It's the 5G tower. I messed it all up, Jim. Psalms 24, look at this. Jesus is resurrected. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. He's walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23. But now he's back. Stone has been rolled and he's back. He ascends through the heavens. And here's the question that heaven now has. Verse 3. You there with me? Verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Because now who can actually stand in righteousness? Who can rule? Who shall ascend the little, little hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The question is, who can actually stand and minister? And all of a sudden, Jesus, as he passes through the heavens, in resurrection power, he lands right there at the celestial courts. And can you imagine angels, sentinels that have been awaiting that king see Jesus return? from this mission alive now he's different than they've ever seen him and the question goes out verse 7 lift up your heads O gates be lifted up O ancient doors that the king of glory might come in then somebody cries out who is the king of glory and it's Jesus the Lord strong and mighty the Lord mighty in battle Lift up your heads, O oh you gates. Lift them up, O oh ancient doors, that the cling of glory might come in. And Jesus comes in. They're looking at him different because he's different than when he left. And they're wondering, is it him? Has he done it? And he comes, goes through the streets of gold, comes to the place where the celestial court actually meets. 
And he arrives at that place where Adam should have stood, but where the enemy took residence. That place where the sons of God gathered and the enemy stood there as though it belonged to him. See, Jesus shows up and he sees that place. But now because of what he's done, there is no devil in that spot. Because of what he's done, he's taken the power from that enemy and now has it within himself. And where Adam should have stood and where the enemy took a place, now Jesus fills it in so that where sin abounded, grace now abounds that much more. And so that our standing could be secure because our father has shown his love by being ripped apart so that you and I could be made whole. And now our representative, oh, look where he is. If he went that far, do you think he's going to forsake you and cast you off now? If he went that far, you think a little, little cheese is going to undo it in your life? If he went that far, you think that momentary madness that takes you to www.ishouldn'tbehere.com, you think that's what's finally going to separate you? You think having done so much for you, you think now your, your behavior is going to alter his love and faithfulness to you. How wild we are to believe that lie. He stands there where Adam once stood, calls you daughter, calls you son, says you're free, says you're in him, says that you can confess his goodness, says that you are forgiven. Will you believe it? Is that not good gospel, y'all? Somebody tell me that ain't good gospel. How about if I told you that's not the whole gospel, though? It gets better. Because, you know, I kind of set you up. Jesus doesn't stand. Jesus might have taken a moment where Adam, his beloved, had once stood. And maybe he thinks about Adam and he can't wait to see him again on that day when Adam 1 and Adam 2 will be able to hug and all of us will rejoice. Maybe Jesus thought of that. And Jesus himself thought, man, I can't wait for that day I return home as conquering king. But see, Jesus didn't stand there. Because Jesus ain't just any son of God to stand amongst their midst. He kept moving. And he went back to the place that's proper to him. And instead of standing, he turned back around and sat down on the throne of glory. For that's where our representative is actually found. Our representative does not stand before the throne. Our representative sits on the throne so that you might know your standing is secure because somebody sat down. Amen? How's about that for some gospel? Woo! Now that's good gospel, isn't it? Somebody tell me that's good gospel. And it's still not the full gospel, though. It's not all the way. It's not all the way. Sorry, I keep doing this to you. But thank you for staying. We will provide free food afterwards. See, because the gospel is not merely that 
your representative sat down. See, the gospel is now because your representative has sat down, there's an invitation. Revelation 3.20. Somebody go to Revelation 3.20 with me, Eddie. Revelation 3.20, because this would not be a good meeting if I didn't give you an opportunity to hear this verse. So about to, this, this is the moment. This is the moment. Behold, I stand at the door and I do what? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Amen? See, this, this is the point where it's like the gospel, now, now you have a choice to make. Will you let him in? Uh, how about we not do that? Because I'm believing that you have let him in. For those of you who haven't, make that choice. But I want to talk to sons and daughters. Because I need sons and daughters to catch a revelation so that then they can actually tell somebody else something. See, this isn't where it stops. The gospel is not the point of a decision. The gospel is the unveiling of a conclusion. And here's the conclusion. Verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquer and sat with my father on his throne. Did you know that the end game of the gospel is for you to receive the victory of Christ and sit on his throne as a co-heir and co-ruler? Bob, did you know that that's your destiny and legacy? To sit on the throne with your father. And that's why he wants you to see that when you look up, you find yourself in that moment, you look up and you see where your life really is hid. Because your Jesus, your Savior, who sits at the right hand of the Father says, Bob, this is where your life is. You're seated right here next to our Father, co-ruling and a co-heir. And one day, one day, you will be up here in fullness of body. But until that day, you believe that this is where you are by faith because I decreed it and it is so. How's about that? For the what? Oh, is there? Oh, praise the Lord. I like that. A throne for two, a love seat. Well, there's room on that love seat for every last one of us. Let me draw your attention to something. Let's go back to Ephesians. Remember where I told you we started? We were going to say some things and remember where we were going to finish? Right here, Ephesians 2. Started with Ephesians 2, we're finishing with Ephesians 2. I finally see, I called into the tower, they tell me I got permission to land. Here we go. You there with me, Ephesians 2? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You see that? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In God's grace, that's not us. Among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy, because he wanted to vindicate his character.
but God, because he wanted to make sure that everybody would know that his law is really eternal. Is that the motive? But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, in loving us, he shows his laws eternal. In loving us, he vindicates his character, but it's motivated by his love for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him. Now, catch this next line. It's the love seat. Thank you, Jim. And seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know that that's our reality now by faith? We're sat next to God. This is the place where I just get, did I make this up, y'all? Or is it there? Why then do we insist on being less than what the Father says we are at his right hand? Why? The continual insistence to put ourselves on some journey when he says, in Christ, you're alive in the conclusion. Oh, well, you know, I'm just on my journey. No, you're not. You're on a brand new adventure because you start from where he finished. Your life begins at the conclusion. Your life begins with newness of life in him recreated so that you can walk out the life you were destined for, so that you can grow from glory to glory. You're not trying to get to a destination. You start from the destination because in him there is no end. It's an endless adventure in the life of God. Will we have trouble and sufferings in this world? To be sure. But are we kept safe and secure by this father who has loved us well? Yes, because we start from where he finished. Our life is a victory lap of his grace. Do you know why he sat us next to God? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you know that the grace of God, his righteousness and his love, the reason it will, that sin will never rise up again is because you and I will forever be the evidence of his goodness. Did you know that? You know that the reason that sin won't rise up again is because what Jesus Christ has done is evidenced in us. That's what the investigative judgment is all about. Are you really the son of man who can really receive and rule? Yes. What's your evidence? My life in Bob. That's my evidence. Can you really rule the kingdom, son of man? What makes you worthy? I'll tell you what makes me worthy. Zach Owens was dead. Now he's alive. I did that. Give me what's mine. That's the investigative judgment. So there will come a day, just like God said in the book of Job. Hopefully he's going to start creating again. It might be a million years down the line, y'all. But God can't help himself. He's a creator, yeah? Maybe he starts doing it all again. And he creates a whole new species. And you and I will be like the sons of God. We'll have the privilege of seeing it happen. Won't that be cool to see God create? He's just speaking things into existence. We're just going to stand there like, oh my goodness, it's better than we thought. 
Maybe we're going to cheer like the sons of God. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. Oh, my goodness. This is the best fireworks show ever. Right? And maybe once those species are established, maybe, I don't know, maybe they become tourists. Maybe there's, I don't know. I'm telling you, we're talking wild stuff here. Wild stuff. Right? I just to, just to be sure where, I'm, where my starting point is, I believe a man that was dead, dead is now alive. So I believe pretty crazy things. So I say that's my baseline. He stood up on a mountain. He told a bunch of people that he'd be back and then he floated away. Like, I believe that literally happened. So I believe some wild things. And so maybe this new species one day comes to the throne of God. Maybe they're touring heaven. Actually, if it's a million, it's a million years down the road, they're actually come to earth because that's where the throne of God will be. That's another sermon. They come to earth and they look at the throne and you know what they see? They see something that puzzles them. They're confused. And they see an angel flying by. Angel, come here. Angel comes down. How could, oh, look at you. You're one of those new creations. I am. How's it going? That's great. I love it. Well, welcome to life, I guess. Thank you. Angel, I have a question. Yeah, what's that? Let me help you out. Can you look at the throne with me? Yeah, that's the throne of our great king. And maybe they're a lot of miles away, you know, good eyes, I don't know. That's the throne of our great king. But angel, if that's the throne of our great king, why is there a man on it? And the angel will look at him and say, oh, you don't know. What do you mean, you don't you don't know why there's a man on there. No, I mean, that should be the throne of God. Why is there a man? And the angel will tell him, that is our God. What do you mean? That's when the angel will fall silent. Because that's not the story that the angel can tell. And the angel will call out. Because he needs the redeemed to tell the story. Because it's the story of the redeemed. Those who were lost that are now found are the only ones who can sing this new song. And a cry will go out. Stan! Stan, I need you to come and tell him the story. And maybe Stan is hanging out with Jim and Richard. And they're somewhere, you know, figuring out the deep intricacies of how sound works on a far, far outreaching planet. Stan says, Jim, Rich, let's go. And now uh, Jim and Rich, they're going, hey, wait a minute, you, you got to tell Eddie, Eddie, come on, Jonathan, Renee, come on, we got to go. Because the call has gone out. Bob, Brent, Cassie, Casey, let's go. Jayla, let's go. John, Floor, let's go. We all gather and we all descend. We're the ones, Jose. We're the ones, Bernice who can now tell the story forevermore of how our great king allowed himself to be ripped apart so that we could be whole and how forevermore he is in the body of a man so that our existence could be secured. How our false father lied to us, but our true father revealed to us the truth. How our false father had us enslaved in death but our true father spoiled the domain of death so that we could have standing. And we will be able to tell forevermore how we were once lost, but praise God, we have been found.
We were once slaves, but praise God, we are now free. We were once in Adam 1, but because of him, we're established in Adam 2. And forever, we will confess the goodness of our God and tell this great story of our salvation because the destiny of the gospel is for you to stand as sons and daughters, co-heirs, and manifest the truth of the Father's love because you are his righteousness. That's the gospel. Amen? How about we believe that? How about we lay aside every sin that so easily ensnares and look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father? How about we look at him? How about we set our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace? How about we believe these songs we sing? My sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. How about we believe some of these songs we sing? Because I promise you it's true. So here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you. I want to seal this moment in prayer and I want to encourage you. We cannot stop meeting together. We cannot forsake the assembly of the body in this good message. And I implore you for anybody who needs to be established in these things, come to Castle Rock. Come to Castle Rock. I can say that confidently because in a moment, in a little bit, we'll present uh, our brother pastor. Is that right, Renee? Renee? Oh, present our brother pastor. Is he around? Yeah. And we just want to want to I want to have a prayer real quick and then we'll just present our brother pastor who's here now. Like, yo, the body has to meet and care for one another. Edra, come on up here, man. I'm, I'm terribly informal. Much to. I don't know, this is my brother, Edra. You guys, you know, um, known him for a long time, established in gospel. I want to mark this moment to say, hey, hey y'all, we need to believe these things, receive these things, and not forsake the meeting together. Because this is how we grow. Established. Encouraging one another. As we see the day approaching. I promise you, in this body, there will be moments where somebody just... Doo -doo 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 -doo. But when we're gathered together in a circle and somebody loses standing, we're each other's crutches. Right? We have the privilege of doing that for one another. So, so let me pray, mark this moment, and then, is that all right? Hey, y'all, is the gospel good? Hey, y'all, is the gospel good? It's good. It's good. Let us believe it in Jesus' name. Father God, I thank you so much for this gospel that calls us sons and daughters, this gospel that calls us free, this gospel that calls us saints, this gospel that tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, this gospel that tells us that we have a mediator, this gospel that tells us that we can confess sin and receive cl cleansing, receive the fullness of forgiveness, this gospel that tells us that we're in Adam too, this gospel that tells us that we're in the spirit, this gospel that tells us we're loved because you say we're worth it. So right now, Father, I pray that every lie that comes up against the truth of us being loved,
might be dispelled in the revelation of Jesus. There are people here that might feel that they've done things that, how could God love me? Might the revelation fall on them that the fact they exist is evidence of the Father's love. For they were an idea first in God's mind, and here they are. I pray that any rigidity along religion, along theological thinking, might fall away at the clear revelation of Scripture. Any rigidity, any contrived theological thinking, that it might fall away at the revelation of Scripture, and that we might stand fast on your word, because your word is final, your word is true, and we can clearly understand your revelation through the teaching of the Spirit. We thank you for all of these things. Are we sufficient for all these things? If we look at it, we're not. But you say we are. So we decide to believe you and look through the eye of faith. We thank you for what you've done, what you continue to do, and how you're leading us on from victory to victory. And we receive this now. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.